Well, good morning. I was thinking about preaching on Noah's flood this morning, but uh, I appreciate it. this was a South, just let you know, this is a South Carolina rain y'all had today. So uh, it, it's a blessing. Uh, I flew up yesterday from, I live in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I am a Southerner. I was born in South Georgia and I was raised in South Carolina. Uh, I'm Southern bred, I'm Southern fed, and when I die, I'm just going to be Southern dead. So uh, that's, that's basically my background. Uh, Brother Park, Dave Park, where's Dave? Is, Dave? is Dave already gone? Okay, okay, Dave was here in the first service. Dave, came, he said, well, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. I said, well, I grew up in Columbia. I said, I said, where did you go to high school? He said, AC Flora. I said, how old are you? He and I are a half a year difference. And I think we ended up, I think we went to the same junior high school. And he went to the rival school that our high school was. So very, very small world. That's my experience already of your church. Yesterday, I flew up from Greenville, <clears throat> was picked up by Jonathan Hoffman. I've known the Hoffman family for a long, long time. Um, I, I always identify the Hoffmans as the Smiley family, and uh, I've known their boys for many, many years, uh, back when they were Bible college students, and <clears throat> I've watched them over the years. It's been my privilege to preach uh, many times up at Camp Kanasataki, and so uh, I'll be going up there this afternoon to speak this week at their teen camp, and so looking forward to that. Uh, your pastor mentioned I've been in ministry now for over 40 years, almost 30 years. I was a traveling evangelist. The old school guy that would go and preach in a church for a week, that was me. Uh, my wife and I have been, we will celebrate our 43rd wedding anniversary next month. And uh, we have four children. Uh, three of my children are married. Their ages are 41, 39, 35, and 26. That's called our blessing. And, uh, we also have, most importantly, five grandchildren. Grandchildren are God's gift to parents for having to raise their children. And so uh, we are flying out this, the end of this week, my wife and I, out to Salt Lake City, Utah, where three out of my four children live, and we're going to do a family vacation. Actually, we've done a lot of family vacations but this is the first family vacation where Grandpa is paying for the whole vacation. And so I'm going to fly all of my grandchildren to Disneyland in Los Angeles, California, and we're going to take a week off. And so we're looking forward to that. So that's a little bit of our family. I, am, uh, I, I just finished nine years as a college president, and God called me to be an evangelist many years ago, so that's what I'm doing. I'm going back on the road preaching uh, we actually have a traveling ministry team that will go with us that will be people somewhere between 20 and 24 years old, and they're a musical group, and our style is bluegrass. How many of you have ever heard of bluegrass, okay? By the way, that's called the music of heaven. I don't know if you knew that. There are banjos in heaven. And uh, so anyway, we're going to be out uh, traveling and doing lots of services, events, concerts, outreaches conferences, and so uh, that's kind of where we are. You can check us out online at Steve Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T, stevepettit.com, and we would love for you to subscribe, or at least we could send you emails and let you know what we're doing. Uh, we have all the Instagram, Steve Pettit Ministries. You can go online and, and watch what we do there, but <clears throat> that way you can stay connected. 
But most of all, I would like for you to pray for us. Uh, I think you would agree with me that the great need today is, is, is a spiritual revival and a spiritual awakening in our country, uh, that that awakening is both among the people of God, which is revival, and then an awakening, which is among people that are without Christ, that they would have their eyes open and see their need of Jesus Christ. So please pray for us as we travel and seek to serve the Lord. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Psalms, Psalms 90 this morning. Your pastor and I were in conversation, and he, he asked me, he said, what do you think about preaching on uh, this Sunday? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I said, let's, let's talk about it. And uh, he had said that they, you'd had a guest speaker who spoke out of the Psalms. He was preaching through Proverbs. And so I said, well, let me send you some Psalm sermons that I have. I have lots of messages. Uh, but I sent him five different sermons, so he may end up preaching those other sermons after I leave. But uh, I, I sent him five. I said, you know, it's you pick one, you know. So uh, your pastor graciously wrote back, and he said, I'd like you to do Psalm 90. So I'm thrilled to be able to preach from the 90th Psalm. Let me just say a word about the Psalms. First of all, they're the most read, it's the most read book in the Bible. Out of 66 books in the Bible, the Psalms is the most read. Why? It's the go-to book for the people of God. Why? Because God's people have emotional ups and downs all the time. And the book of Psalms is like when Jesus spoke in the boat and there was a storm on the sea and he said, peace be still. That's what the Psalms does for your soul. It's a spiritual IV to the bloodline of your soul. When you read the book of Psalms, it's the quickest way to encounter a sense of the presence of God. The early church father, Augustine, said of the book of Psalms that he read it every day because it was what God used to orient his life in a spiritual and a moral way on a daily basis back to God. So I would highly encourage you to read Psalms for your own soul's sake. You say, which one should I read? It doesn't matter. They all work. They all work. And you have short Psalms. You have long Psalms. Most of them are somewhere between 6 and 20 verses. And I want us to look this morning at Psalm 90, which is entitled, A Prayer of the Man of Moses, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And I want to read the whole psalm so we'll get the feel for it, and then we'll dive into it this morning. Let's hear God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And, 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 excuse me, and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, the beauty of our Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yea, establish the work of our hands. And may God's blessing rest upon the reading of his word and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it now with your power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. Use it in the lives of your people. Use it, Lord, to strengthen our souls, to save our souls, and to sanctify our souls. Help us, Lord, to be more like you as we learn more about you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this psalm, which is unique, is A Prayer of Moses the man of God. So it tells us who wrote the psalm. It was Moses. Now, <clears throat> Moses lived 1,400 years before Jesus was born. So this psalm, Psalm 90, is the oldest of all the 150 psalms, and it makes Moses the first composer of what we would call sacred hymnody. Now, <clears throat> in this Psalm 90 chap a title, Moses is called the man of God. You may or may not know this, but six other times in the Old Testament, Moses is called the man of God. Now, why? Here's why. Because he was the one that stood between God and the children of Israel. He was what we would call the mediator. So, for example, he goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives him the law and then he takes the law and, it bring, and he brings it down to the children of Israel. But not only did he receive and give the law out, but he also was one that stood between God and man and interceded for them. He prayed for them to invoke the blessing of God on his people. And so Moses is called a man of God because he prays for his people. And we know this. That if a person is, is viewed as a true man of God, they will always be, be distinguished as people of prayer. So it's called a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So in this case, what is Moses praying about? If it's his prayer, what's he praying about? And as we look at it this morning, I believe that what he is praying for is for the people of God to learn a lesson. Have you ever had children and you want them to learn a lesson? When you say, look at me, I want you to learn this. God's saying to his people, look at me, I want you to learn this lesson. Now, what is the lesson that they need to learn? Well, it was something that Moses had learned through his experience of leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. Now, if you know the life of Moses, he lived 120 years. His life was divided up in three 40-year segments. The first 40 years, he lived in Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh, educated by the Egyptians. And at the 40 years old, he was a prince of Egypt. And at the age of 40 years old, knowing he was Jewish, he thought, 
I'm somebody. God can use me. And God said, no, I can't use anybody who thinks they're somebody. So what did he do? For the next 40 years, he put him on the backside of the wilderness. And for 40 years, he took care of sheep. You know what it's like to take care of sheep? Number one, they're smelly. Number two, they're really stubborn. Isn't it interesting that we are called the sheep of his pasture? And after 40 years of taking care of, of, of sheep on the backside of a desert, Moses at 80 years old stands before God and says, God, I'm a nobody. And God says, well, I can use you now. And so for the next 40 years, his last 40, from 80 to 120, he led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, two million people through a wilderness, and yet, during those 40 years, it should have been a relatively short trip to go up to the land of Canaan, but instead, it ended up to be a 40-year death march. For all the people that came out of the land of Egypt did not get into the land of Israel, who were 20 years old and over, with two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. And why? What was the problem? And the reason is that the people disobeyed God and they would not trust God with their lives. And so the lesson that Moses learned during this time and what he wanted the children of Israel to learn in this psalm for the people of God going forward in the future is he wanted them to learn this lesson. And that is you need to live your life on purpose in light of eternity. You need to live your life on purpose in light of eternity. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said it this way, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. It is very difficult for us to see life beyond the grave. It is hard for us to live our lives in light of eternity. And so Psalm 90 is written for the people of God so that they could have an eternal perspective and the way that they live their life. And so there are three truths that we learn here in Psalm 90 that Moses wants us to learn about living life in light of eternity. And what are those? Here's the first one. It's found in verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord... You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What's the first lesson he learned? That God is eternal. God is everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting. How do you explain that one? From everlasting in the past to everlasting in the future. The only way that we can look at time is past, present, and future. God doesn't look at time that way. God existed in eternity past. God exists in the present today. God is going to exist in the future because God is eternal. It's hard for us to grasp that. We don't live that way. We live in a time frame. We have a birth date and we have a death date. And all we understand of life is the way that we live now. Have you ever heard anybody say, today is not like it used to be? The world is different today. Let me tell you something. The world's always changing. But in some ways, the world is never changing. It is still the same. And here's what God is saying. God is saying, I am the only one who is eternally constant. And think about it. 
Moses and the children of Israel live in a permanent state of change. Everything was changing all the time. Permanent state of flux. For 40 years in the wilderness, what did they do? They packed up their tents and they moved to another place. And if you look at the Bible maps, you'll notice that all they did was go around in circles. You know, people are like that. They live their life just going around in circles. And the only consistent thing that Moses did was he packed up his tent and he attended a lot of funerals. And during this period of instability, Moses said that the only thing that ever gave him a sense of feeling at home was the presence of God dwelling among them. Because wherever they lived, the children of Israel living in tents, and you can go back and read it in the Old Testament, they lived in their tribes, they lived in a certain section, but one thing that never changed was God was there in the midst, in the presence of them. And here's what he has learned. He has learned, he learned this, that his, his sense of stability and security in an ever-changing world was always the presence of God. My family and I traveled in the ministry of evangelism for almost 30 years. I lived, my family and I lived in a fifth-wheel trailer. Do you know what a fifth-wheel trailer is? Hooks up to the back of a pickup truck. My children literally grew up traveling on the road. One day I asked my oldest son, Stephen, when he was a little boy, we were traveling down the highway. I said, I said, where do you live, son? He said, back there. <laughs> my kids grew up in church parking lots. We would do 30 to 40 weeks a year of revival meetings, we called them. And, and we park, literally parked in church parking lots. And the only thing that we did different was in the summertime, we would go and serve in a camp ministry up in northeastern Wisconsin. That's where I met the Hawkins. But essentially, we were like the most unstable family in all the world. We were always constantly moving. But I learned something, that it didn't matter which church parking lot we were in. It didn't matter if we were in Florida, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Iowa, New Mexico, California, Washington State. Every single morning I would wake up and I would do the exact same thing. I would make coffee. You mean to tell me that in order to get to heaven you have to drink coffee? No, but it sure makes the trip a whole lot better. <laughs> Every morning I would wake up and I would make a pot of coffee. And then I would sit down and I would open my Bible and every morning, I had a sense of the presence of God. And do you know what? It didn't matter where I was. Every morning when I was in the Bible, I knew the Lord was with me. So I woke up this morning in the big, big town of Mount Pleasantville, which I'm still not sure where it is. <laughs> and I got up this morning at 530 and I took a quick shower, and Mrs. Hoffman was coming up the stairs. I said, you got any coffee? She said, yep, it's already made. Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> coffee. And I went downstairs, and I looked in the refrigerator, and they had half and half. And then I found some sugar, and they even had whipped cream. You say, that's not, that's not coffee, that's dessert. You drink coffee your way. I'll drink coffee my way. I told you I was Southern. You ever heard of sweet tea? 
And I sat down this morning and I read 2 Kings chapter 2 and I read 2 Kings chapter 4 and I prayed through Psalm 90. And the same sense of God's presence I felt today, I felt yesterday and the day before and for the last 47 years of my life. You know what Moses learned in that wilderness? Everything was changing, but one thing, God. And if you want stability in your life, in an unstable world, the only place you're going to find that is in the Lord. That's the first thing he learned. He learned God is eternal. Then notice, secondly, he learned this. He learned that we are temporal. Moses portrays here the sobering reality of the frailty of our own existence. And he says four things. Number one, he says our future destiny is very humbling. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. What does he mean about us returning to dust? Well, from dust you were taken, creation of Adam, to dust you shall return. He's talking about passing away, about dying. He says, our destiny is humbling. We're going to die. Some have suggested that the historical background to the writing of this song is found in Numbers chapter 20. You say, what happened in Numbers 20? Three life-changing events for Moses. Number one, his sister died, Miriam. Number two, his brother died, Aaron. And number three, he, he disobeyed God by smoting a rock with a staff that God told him not to do. And God says, you're not going to enter in the promised land. Moses, you're going to die because of your disobedience. Three death sentences. Brother, sister, and himself. And suddenly he faced the reality that we are all under the curse of death. We're all going to face God's judgment in death. If you're rich or poor, you're going to die. If you're famous or obscure, you're still going to die. If you're intellectual or illiterate, if you're a humanitarian or a criminal, Everybody's going to end up decomposing six feet underground. Genesis 3, 19, you, you will from dust thou art, and unto dust shalt you return. Think about it. Our original composition was dirt. Our final destination is dirt. The best description of our lives is that we are dirt. And that is extremely humbling. Our destiny is humbling. Then notice number two. He said our lifespan is brief. Verse four. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Moses contrasts God's perspective on time with the human viewpoint of time. Everything in the eyes of God is smaller in size or is shorter in time. When God speaks about the population of the nations, he says in Isaiah 40 and verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. And similarly, in God's eyes, a thousand years are like how many days? One day that has already passed by. What is he saying? He says his viewpoint of time is very different than ours. When you're young, time moves awfully slow especially when you're in English class. 
But in reality, time moves at warp speed. Ask anybody in this room who's 65 years old and over if time doesn't move fast. And for the older you get, the faster it moves. And what is he telling us? He is telling us that our lifespan is brief. He says 70, 80 years. Oh, for some of you, you think 70. Man, that is a long time. It's not that long away. My son Stephen is 35 years old, married, he's got four boys. Their ages are eight, seven, six, and four. Figure it out. And he's not raising, um, he's raising Vikings. Can I put it that way? When I say boys, I mean with a capital B. He opens the back door in the morning, says go play, brings them in at lunchtime, and they're all over the place. And no shirt, no shoes, old school, you know what I'm saying? Climbing trees, wrestling on the ground, you know, pure boys. And my son's life is a blur. I mean, what did you do yesterday? I don't remember. What are you going to do tomorrow? I have no idea. I go to work, take care of my kids. You understand what I'm saying? That's a blur. And he's 35 years old. And I already know what's going to happen. One day he's going to wake up and he's 41. He's going to go, I'm a, I'm a 40-year-old man. And I remember thinking of somebody who's 40 years old. And before you know it, they're going to be in high school. And they're going to graduate. You're wondering, how am I going to pay for college? And before you know it, you're already 50 years old. 50. And then you think, oh, well, I got some time. And then suddenly you're 58. And then you realize, I get Medicare in about seven years. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? And then, and then you get with your friends and you used to talk about your work and your job and your house and your children. And now you know what you talk about? How you feel. <laughs> How are you doing physically? And, and, and you're thinking, okay, I'm 68 years old. I'm 68. You still think you're going to live a long time. And then all of a sudden you have friends pass away. But it's really hard to apply it to yourself. And he's telling us here, that life, our, he's telling us that our, our death comes very quickly. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, he says, they carry them away as a flood. They are as a, they are as a dream. In the morning, they're like grass that grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. What he's saying here is that life always ends suddenly. No matter how old somebody gets, when they die, it's always shocking. It's always a surprise, and it's always sad. And Moses uses three images to, depe to, to depict how quickly death comes to us. He says, first of all, death is like a sudden flood. Now, if you lived in the land of Israel, you would know exactly what he was saying, and you, you would have a sense of emotional fear. Because in the land of Israel, it's a land of hills and valleys. They don't have the rivers like what we have here, like the Susquehanna. They have the Jordan River, but the Jordan River is a long ways away. What they have is they have dry riverbeds called wadis. And when the, when the rain comes in the winter season, the rain falls on top of the mountains. And what happens to the water? It comes down. And when it goes down into the desert, it comes down through what they call these dry riverbeds 
or what they call wadis. And wadis normally are places where people hike. It's, a, it's dry sand. But the problem is <clears throat> when the rain comes, it can come down from the mountains as a flood and you don't know it's coming. I was in Israel back in 2018 and right about the time I arrived, it came out in the news that nine Israeli teens were hiking in a wadi when floods came and washed them all away and killed them suddenly. Everybody knew in Israel what could happen in a flood. And here's what he is saying. He says, you carry them away as with a flood. It happens that fast. Then he says, they are like a dream. What is he talking about here? He says, life is like a dream when you're asleep. Have you ever had a dream and when you're in the middle of it, you thought it was so real? And then you woke up and you thought, oh, that wasn't real. And then the problem is you can't even remember it. He says life is like a dream. Think about it. People are born, people live, people die, and people don't even remember that you ever lived. How humbling is that? Let me ask you a question. Do you know the names of your grandparents? If you know the name of your grandparents, raise your hand. Okay. Everybody does. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Okay. A little less. How many know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Ah, hardly anybody. What does that tell me? Do you know just a few years ago that your great-great-grandparents were here on this earth and everybody knew who they are? And now you're from their family and you don't even know their name. What does that tell me? It tells me that we come, we appear, we live, and he's saying it to humble us that our life is like a dream. It just, it just passes away. And then one other thing he says here, and that is our life is like the grass. Now, the grass in Israel is not like the grass in Pennsylvania, okay? It's a little different. And by the way, what you're hearing out there, this kind of rain, it doesn't happen a lot in Israel, I can tell you that. But when it rains in Israel in the winter season, something happens in the desert that's amazing. Grass pops up on the desert hills. It's the coolest thing. I've been there, and I've seen the green grass on these desert hill, hills, but it only lasts a few weeks. Because soon the heat comes and that grass withers up very quickly and dies. And that's the illustration the Bible gives about human life. You pop up, you're green, and then suddenly you quickly wither away. Now why is Moses saying this? Because for 40 years he watched 600,000 people die in the wilderness who came out of the land of Egypt, but never got into the land of Canaan. And he watched their life, and he watching this every single day. And he's learning a lesson we already all know, but he's learning it in a very strong way. He's saying that life is very temporal. But then one other thing about life being temporal, and that is, he says, our judgment is something that we deserve. Look at what he says in verse 7. For we are consumed by thy anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. You have set our iniquities before, us, before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. The Jewish people had received a firsthand experience of God's judgment. God said, you disobeyed me, you're going to die. Now, they could have gotten angry at God and thought they don't deserve it, but they knew they deserved it. Every one of us are going to die. Is that not true? Every one of us. And every one of us deserve it. Because the wages of sin 
his death. That's why you need a redeemer. You need somebody to pay for your sins and death, but you also need somebody who can rise from the dead and conquer sin and death. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. But he never let the Jewish people forget their sins. He says, you have set our sins before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. I heard somebody say that there's three parts to our life. There's our public life, there's our private life, and there's our secret life. There's public sins, there's private sins, and there's secret sins. Every one of you sitting in this room have secret sins that nobody knows about but the Lord. Every one of you. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm just telling you the truth. We all got public sins. We all got private sins. If you don't think you have private sins, ask your wife. But we all have secret sins. Because sins are within our hearts. And the Lord knows every single one of them. And if you don't think you deserve judgment, then you've never seen yourself as the Lord sees you. And the whole point that Moses is trying to make is that he has seen it, he's observed it, that life is temporal. So what does he do? He tells us, then use your time wisely. He said, look, you got 70, maybe 80 years. If every one of you are going to die at 70 years old, how much time you got left? You say, I already passed that date. All right, let's say you make it to 80. How long do you have? You don't have very long. So what does he do? He says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I went to a military school in South Carolina called the Citadel. It's kind of like West Point. When I went, I wasn't a Christian. I grew up going to church, but I was not a real believer. I heard the gospel in high school, and I really understood the gospel when I was 17 years old. But at 17, I said I wasn't ready to get religious. What I meant was I wanted to live for myself. So I'll go off to military college, and uh, I, I, I play on the soccer team. I make the varsity soccer team. It was a D1 school. And my roommate was a born-again Christian. And so he began to share the gospel with me. And every day that I would walk to class, we had a chapel on campus, and etched in granite at the top of the chapel was the words from Ecclesiastes 12.1. It says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And I remember every day walking by, walking by, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And God, through a lot of different circumstances, plus his word, God working in my heart, I came to make a decision to receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior on Easter Sunday, 1975, as a freshman in college. I was actually listening to a preacher over the radio. He was preaching the gospel, and on that day, I made that decision. Let me ask you a question. Have you made that decision to receive Jesus as your Savior? God's calling you. So teach us the number of our days. We have the tendency to think, well, I've got a lot of time. When I get old, when my hair turns gray or turns loose, one of the two, that's when I become a Christian. You think you have a long time, not what you think. It's not the way it works. But also, I realized in my youth at 19 years old, if I'm going to live for God, I don't want to give God the worst part of my life. I want to give God the best part of my life. 
And at 19 years old, I dedicated my life to serve the Lord with my life, whatever that meant. God ended up calling me into the ministry. I, wasn't, I didn't know if I was going to go into ministry. I think God calls some in the ministry, but I think God calls everybody to minister. And so I surrendered my life to the Lord because I wanted my life to count. And you know what? That wasn't that long ago. And guess what? This fall, I'm going to my 45th college reunion. 45th. That's a bunch of old guys. Fact is, I walk into the room and I start laughing because we all look the same. And I think, I don't look that old, do I? And what is he saying to us? When we think about how short life is, what do I do with my time? Redeem the time because the days are evil. So Moses learned God is eternal. Number two, he learned life is temporal. Then one last thing. And that is Moses had learned in the wilderness, and he wanted the people to learn this, that prayer is essential. In verse 3, God calls man to return to him. It's interesting. In verse 13, the psalmist calls on God to return to man. Our necessary response to the brevity of life is to cry out to God in prayer. When we recognize who God is, when we recognize who we are, what's the most natural thing? It is to do what the psalmist said, Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. What is that? Oh, it's the, it's the word of emotion. Oh, Lord. And what does Moses do in these last five verses? He prays, number one, for God's mercy. God's people had suffered a long time under God's chastening hand in the wilderness. Moses wondered aloud, how long will it continue, Lord? God had made a covenant with his people through Abraham, a covenant backed by his own faithfulness and love. And so what did Moses do? He understood God's judgment, but he prayed for God's mercy. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, have mercy on me. Have you been praying that lately? And then he prayed not only for mercy, but he prayed for joy. Verse 15, he said, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. When, when, when your fellowship is restored, your joy is restored. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It really, by the way, it really is. When you are emotionally troubled, we have a modern word for that. It's called mental health. How many have ever heard of mental health? Okay. What is mental health? Mental health is fear, anxiety, loneliness, depression. Okay. What's the opposite of those? joy. You know a prayer for joy is a prayer for good mental health? And you know where you get your mind straightened out? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26. A healthy mind is a mind that is focused on the Lord. That's where stability and joy is. The greatest way for us to worship God is to find in him the satisfactions of, that our hearts desire, where we seek him. He prayed for joy. He prayed for mercy. And then finally, the last thing he prayed for was blessing. Look at verse 16. 
Let, the, let, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yea, establish the work of our hands. I want you to think with me. This is Moses praying, okay? And he prays something very much. He prays for God's blessing. How many of you want God to bless you? Raise your hand. By the way, everybody I've ever met wants God to bless them. They may not know exactly what the blessing is, but they want it. And Moses had been in that wilderness for 40 years, and he watched everybody 20 years old and over die. And who was left? Everybody 20 years old and under. Who were they? They were the children of the wilderness parents. And would you notice he prayed, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Do you know what happened? That next generation, they weren't led by Moses. They were led by a guy named Joshua. And Joshua took that whole generation, and what did they do? They went into the land, and they conquered it. And they were not victims. They were victors. And God blessed as the next generation that came up were going out and serving the Lord. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. How many of you have grandchildren? How many of you are burdened that your children and your grandchildren would live for the Lord? My grandchildren, I prayed for them this morning. I prayed for Judah. And I prayed for Shiloh. There's Luca, there's Sonny, and there's Sydney. My heart was turned to them this morning because, God, I want you to bless my children and I want you to bless my children's children, and I want your beauty to be upon them, your favor. I want your blessing. And this is what he learned. He learned that prayer is essential. It should be at the very core of our church to pray for God's mercy, to pray for God's joy, and to pray for God's blessing. Prayer is at the very heart of our lives. That's what he learned in the wilderness. This is not complicated. God's eternal. Life's temporal. Man's temporal. Prayer is essential. But everyone in this room who's a believer knows that this is true. May the Lord help us to live out what Moses called us to do. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, there may be people in this room that are without Jesus. And Lord, I pray that today they would open their hearts and receive Christ. Lord, today is the day of salvation, as you have said. I pray for those that are young people in this room who are trying to decide direction of life, that they will decide to remember their Creator in the days of their youth. I pray, Lord, for our families that they will serve you and Lord, that we will live our lives in light of eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name.